Well, good morning. We are going to be kicking off a new series this morning as we jump into summer, in which we're going to be looking at lessons from Old Testament leaders for the rest of the summer. We're officially now in the summer mode here, as some of you guys are still finishing out kids in school and whatnot. But we're going to kick off a series this morning where we're going to begin to look at lessons from Old Testament leaders for the rest of the next few months. And so excited for that. We're going to be looking at, since it is Mother's Day this morning, we're going to look at a mom. Uh, in case you've been with us the last five weeks as we walk through our Every Knee series, talking about generosity, talking about a future vision for our church, in case you're wondering how all that culminated last Sunday, we'll let you guys know we're going to come back with you guys with more information in about three weeks. So uh, we're going to kind of let everything keep coming in, kind of keep crunching stuff, and then we'll come back to you guys just so in case you're wondering in about three weeks, the first Sunday of June, and kind of give you guys a fill-in as to where things stand. So that's where we'll come back to. But really for this morning and really for the rest of the summer, we're going to be looking at lessons from Old Testament leaders, and so it's fitting on this Mother's Day that we would look at the life of a mom, and for you moms that are out there, again, happy Mother's Day. We recognize that you guys have one of the most unique, one of the most challenging roles, and the internet has memes that highlight your life all over the place, all right? Uh, so here's a couple for you. This is one of my favorites, uh, Motherhood Inc., Human Resources. A mom's applying for the job, and she says, one vacation day a year, that's all I get. The HR representative says, yes, we call it Mother's Day, but technically you still have to work. Maybe a little too close to home this morning, I don't know. Uh, here is my favorite, though, of all memes that are out there, and some of you guys have seen this a little while back, but for all those of you who just need a moment to get away, and the bathroom is that holy sanctuary of isolation and a moment to breathe, they will find you, and they always do, right? Lastly, but certainly not least, I love this one, uh, two kids that have ransacked mom's closet and found her Superman cape, recognizing that that's how she does it, because she's a super mom. Uh, my wife as well. I'll just tell you guys, for us that get to live alongside of moms or get to have been benefited by moms, you guys are one of the most unique creatures that the world has, and we are incredibly indebted and grateful for your service and your impact on all of us. Really, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 1, so if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 1, because we're going to look at a close-up of a mom. I'll tell you guys, maybe I just missed the boat for the first 20 years of my Christian life, but I, I had never actually taken a close look at 1 Samuel 1 and the story of Hannah. I think the story of Hannah is going to challenge a lot of us. It's going to encourage us. And I think her story is really, really compelling. And so for me, this past week was a great week of getting to kind of open and look at a story I had actually never really caught or glimpsed of and really been impacted by until this week. So it was fresh for me and it was really fun to jump into. And really, as we look at Hannah's life, we're going to see a, a woman who shows up really at one of the darkest moments in the nation of Israel's life. And her faith, her dedication is going to have, really, it's going to have ripples on the rest of Old Testament history. And she's going to really single-handedly create a pivot moment in the redemptive plan of God throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Because simply because of this one mom's faith and her dedication to the Lord as she walked her life out. Hannah's story, some of you may know it, some of you may not, I think is incredibly encouraging. But it's also incredibly convicting and challenging as we kind of watch her navigate life. For some of you who know her story, really, uh, like most of the great heroes of the Old Testament whose lives had a huge impact, her story, like theirs, will be marked by pain. And so as we begin to look at her story, the beginning of it's quite unenviable. Uh, she's going to be trained and really shaped by the pain of waiting as the earliest parts of her life. And we're going to pick that up in First Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Notice what our text tells us. We're going to see an introduction of characters in the first couple of verses, and it tells us this, that now there was a certain man 
from Ramathaim Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph. I might have mispronounced three of those names, but we're going to keep rolling. An Ephraimite. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. Really, as we begin to open up chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, what we see is a family, a husband with a bride, and they had, or he had two brides. As we jump into chapter 1, verse 1, it really creates the first issue of the question of polygamy, and that's a whole discussion for another day, but it would seem that in chapter 1, verse 1, there's some concession and some reality that that was something that was happening in the nation of Israel's life. It's not surprising this is one of the darkest times in the nation of Israel's life. And what the narrator of 1 Samuel does is often what we see throughout the Old Testament is that he doesn't stop for a brief aside to say, hey, by the way, this was evil and horrible, right? What he's going to do is he's going to let the narrative unfold to show you what an absolute dysfunctional mess this created in the lives of this polygamous family. You can't walk out of 1 Samuel 1 and think that polygamy was a good thing. 1 Samuel 1 will show you the narrative as it unfolds. It created absolute dysfunction and absolute mess and pain in the midst of this family's life. And really the second half of verse 2 really shows you where the pain is. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. But it really is... The passage opens up, you get this polygamous family with these two wives, one has children, one doesn't. And it really, as the, as the story opens up, you get even a greater sense of the pain and the disparity between these two wives. Notice verse 4. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons and her daughters. Great plethora, great plurality. There are so many, we don't even get their names. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. It's interesting, you have these two wives, and Penina has a ton of kids, and Hannah has none. And it's meant to create an incredible juxtaposition, incredible contrast between these two women. And really, as I read the story as it unfolds, it's interesting to me, in verse 1, you get this amazing genealogy of one name after another after another for Elkanah. But when we get to Penina's sons, there are so many of them and so many daughters that we don't even get any of their names. And the sense is there's just such a great plethora, we don't even have the time to name them. I grew up as an only child, which maybe <laughs> references some of my issues, all right? Uh, my father was an only child. His father was an only child. So my family experience was incredibly small, incredibly tight. Christmas was really my mom and I and my grandparents and when I was born, my mom's parents had already passed away. And so really, the entirety of family for me was a very small affair. When I married into my wife's family, uh, it reminded me a little bit of the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, if any of you have ever seen it, uh, where the, uh, the husband or the groom's family was small, quiet, and stable, and everything was under control. And my wife's family was boisterous, was big, was incredibly fun. You had to be loud to get a moment at the table to speak, and you had to fight for it. And really, there was a moment as I would go into the course of this family that I love and cherish dearly. There was a moment six months into marriage where uh, my wife was the oldest in the family, the first to be married off. And uh, at Thanksgiving, after six months into marriage, my father-in-law says to my wife, says, hey, why don't you get over there next to your little friend? <laughs> We're six months into marriage, and I'm like, I have a name. And I think by now, like, we're kind of should be past this whole initial not really accepting reality of marriage and your daughter being married off, right? 
It would get worse when we would have our first family reunion about a year later in the, in the first summer of being married in which we would jump in and I would quickly realize they had a tradition in these family reunions. They have all of the cousins kind of line up in chronological birth order. So my wife, Marcy, was the first of the line. And we'd go down and probably like 30 kids to little Corey, who at the time was about four. And then as I was the first to marry into this elaborate giant family, they would pop me in at the very end of the line. Technically is what they would affectionately refer to as a add-on, all right? So I quickly realized in this big, giant family, I was the first official add-on of many add-ons to come. But again, I was nameless, all right? It's like, hey, Trey, T-Dog, whatever you want to go with. All right? How about not add-on, all right? I get that same sense as I listen to the story unfold in verse 4 that Penina had so many sons, so many daughters. They're just all just so plethora and so numerous, we don't even have time for their names, It creates this great juxtaposition of poor little Hannah, right? In a polygamous marriage, and she has no kids. The irony, the the contrast, the the severity stands out even further as you go a little bit further. Notice verse 5. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. To the ancient Hebrew reader, as they would have gone through 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5 would have screamed out as to an amazing irony and a severe contrast. You see, Hannah's name literally meant favor. And so here, as the scene opens up in 1 Samuel 1, we have a woman whose name means favor, and yet the Lord has closed her womb, meaning there was no favor, right? This woman whose name meant favor, that it should have been an abundance in her life, is one who, at least at this point in time, God has withheld his favor and his blessing in her life. It would have screamed out to the ancient Hebrew reader who would have recognized the meaning of her name. A similar moment occurs like this in the book of Ruth, chapter 1. As it unfolds, it says there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally meant house of bread. And what Ruth, chapter 1, was saying was there was no bread in the house of bread. It was an irony in a Hebrew wordplay that would have screamed out as something is not right. This would be a little bit like if you walked into Spoons this afternoon and they were completely out of yogurt, right? Or in the lanes and they're out of chicken fingers, right? Or out of, in the Starbucks and there's no coffee. That there's something horribly, horrifically wrong. That Hannah, whose name means favor, there is no favor. The irony stands out, but the contrast gets deepened because where you have a comparison, it quickly moves into competition. Notice verse 6, how they refer to one another. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. This comparison between Hannah and Penina quickly devolves not just into a comparison, but into competition, such that they become rivals. This is not a good functional family, right? It goes a little bit further. Notice verse 7. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that Penina would provoke her, Hannah. And so Hannah wept and would not eat. Quickly, this comparison moves into competition. The competition drives Hannah probably into depression. She's not rising. She's not eating. She's just weeping bitterly. In fact, the text says it was year after year. So this isn't Hannah having a bad day. This is Hannah having a bad decade, right? And underneath the weight of that, that prolonged and that continued, she's just broken, weeping, not eating, struggling even to worship. Hannah was initially here trained by the great tutor that is known as pain. For Hannah, her pain was one of infertility. And for some of us, we know that pain. For some of us, we don't. I'll I'll tell you, as a dude, (laughs) speaking from 1 Samuel 1 on Mother's Day, I'll just say uh, the pain of infertility is one I I 
I, I can't fully grasp. For some of you ladies that are maybe either experiencing infertility or have, have experienced it in the past or have dealt with miscarriages, as a guy standing up here trying to teach 1 Samuel 1, I'll just confess, it's not something I fully grasp. For Marcy and I, in our experiences that we walk through marriage, it's something I'm familiar with. For us, we had three different miscarriages, one of which occurred at 20 weeks. It was one of the hardest and one of the saddest experiences of our entire marriage. So I'm familiar with it, but even in the midst of that familiarity, and for some of you guys, as you walk out to our Edwing, you'll notice there's a placard next to the playground that, as you go to the Edwing that says, in memory of Hudson Todd Corey, that was our boy that we lost at 20 weeks. And so 1 Samuel 1, the idea of infertility, the idea of miscarriage, is not an unfamiliar concept for me. But even in walking it out in my own marriage, it's not one that I ever have fully grasped. And for some of you, that's where you are. For some of you, you know that experience. For some of you, you've walked through it. And it's incredibly trying. It's incredibly difficult. And so in the midst of me not fully grasping it, I will say to you guys, as you look at verse 8, I fully grasp this husband, though, as he tries to process through it alongside of his wife. Notice what Elkanah says to her. It's going to be a little bit cringeworthy, all right? Verse 8. Elkanah like most husbands who are trying to grieve and comfort his grieving wife, who doesn't know what to say, feels like he's got to say something. So notice what he says and hold back the cringe. He says, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? <laughs> Dude, like, really? That's where you went, my man. Woo! <laughs> Elkanah comes in a long line of husbands who really don't fully grasp the emotions of their wives and see emotions as lava that they need to get to high ground on because they're really scared by it all, okay? And who thinks as he moves towards it, he can just fix it. And he thinks he's the solution. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't work. And yet I appreciate his well-meaningness, but really for many of those that deal with infertility, whether it's their husbands or whether it's those that come alongside, we often, and they often, have to experience a lot of bad, misguided help, all right? And so on this Mother's Day, for some of them that are dealing with it now or for some that are, have dealt with it in the past, I, I want to provide us as a corporate body a few reminders and a few tips in the midst of those that are dealing with that specific pain. The first I want to say is this. Uh, in the midst of Mother's Day, and we try to do this from the top of our morning, we want to recognize that that pain is uniquely difficult. There are many that are probably dealing with it right now, and they probably elected to stay home this morning, to not want to deal with church, to not want to get out. And what I want to say this morning, whether they're home or whether you know some that are home or whether there's some that are facing it and showed up this morning, man, we just want to say, we don't fully get it, but man, we, we do want to honor it and recognize it is a unique pain to the core for some. And so if you know some that are dealing with it, or if you know some that are um, home even this morning, I, I want to encourage us, send a text. Not promising what God's going to do in the future. Not saying it's all going to be okay. Not diminishing it or being the husband that says, hey, am I not awesome? Right? But saying, hey, we love you and we're praying for you and we care for you greatly. But there aren't words that fix and remove some of that. But being present and being aware and moving towards people with a compassion really matters. Second thing I want to say, for some, is we're talking about the pain of waiting in Hannah's life. We see the pain of waiting for one who's waiting through infertility in the midst of that uncertainty. But for many of us this morning, we know the pain of waiting in a whole different realm, right? 
And maybe it isn't infertility. Maybe for some of you, it's singleness. You're waiting for God's provision of a spouse. Or for some of you, you're waiting in the midst of business, waiting for God to do something and turn something around. Maybe for you, it's something in your family that you're asking and praying that God would intervene in the midst of your family in such a way to bring hope, change, and healing. Remember, you might be financial. For some of you, it's family. For some of you, it's something physical. In the midst of sickness, disease, illness, you're waiting on answers, wondering when this will be relented, when this will change. And for every single one of us, we know the pain of waiting in some form or fashion. It may not be infertility. And the encouragement I want to give to each of us this morning in the midst of this, even as we sang this morning, is that God doesn't forget. He doesn't see. He doesn't fail to see. He doesn't fail to hear. This is one of my favorite quotes from a professor at seminary. He said this. He said that in suffering, God may be found precisely where he was on Good Friday. Identifying with us in our suffering, acting to resolve that suffering in ways we may not see or imagine, and yet sovereign in the heavens, accomplishing his eternal, though mysterious, purposes. In the midst of your greatest struggles, does God see and does he hear? The answer is yes. It feels like he's silent. It feels like he's distant. It feels like he's not doing anything at all. And that's exactly how everyone have felt on Good Friday, right? The resurrection, though, shows that God always sees. He always hears. He's always moving towards the resolution and the restoration of suffering and difficulty. But we often don't know how. We often don't know why. And we often don't know why it's on our timetable. Why it's not on our timetable. I love Hannah's story, though, because we're going to see a woman who's going to be trained by the pain of waiting, who's going to get up and she's going to respond. Third thing I say to us this morning as we think through some of this is that for some of us, the pain that we're experiencing, and this sounds horrible on a Mother's Day, is parenting itself. That we're not in a waiting posture for God to provide a child. God did provide a child, and we're still waiting for the fulfillment of our initial expectations. This hasn't turned out like we thought it would. Frankly, this hasn't been anything like we thought it would be. It's been the hardest thing we've ever had to walk through. In the midst of that, as a corporate church body, again, we gather around and we say, yeah, this is one of the most trying, challenging experiences, and yet one of the most blessed as well. And so for some of you, if you're in that place, you go, I'm not waiting anymore, but I still feel a guilt in having to navigate through this world that is not as joyful as I thought it would be. Again, we want to say, hey, (laughs) you're not alone. Parenting is really challenging for some of us and for many of us, for almost all of us. Hannah's story reveals the pain of waiting and a pain of uncertainty. And for many of us, our pain of waiting looks different or our pain in parenting looks different than Hannah's. But for all of us, we're often trained and we're often shaped by it. And what I really want us to see this morning is not necessarily the nature of Hannah's pain, but I want you to see her response to it. I think it's her response to the pain of waiting that I think is one of the most instructive, one of the most transformative, and one of the most helpful for us because she's going to move from the pain of waiting to a dedication of an offering. She's going to move from the pain of waiting to the dedication of an offering through a series of key reversals that's going to be absolutely significant to us. But what happens is there's a turning point after Elkanah's conversation in verse 8, and we're going to see her begin to turn in verse 9. It's interesting, though, because in the midst of the dialogue that Elkanah has with her, it strikes me as a little odd that the turning point would come around on the backside of that because it doesn't seem to be the most helpful conversation. Uh, my wife and I had, uh, were great friends through college, and honestly, in the midst of our story, I had first showed up to her door, and I said, hey, I'd love us to date. We were best friends about halfway through junior year. I said, hey, I'd love for us to date. I'm curious if this could ever become something different. And she said at the point in time, actually, I wouldn't worry about praying. I don't think it's ever going to be different. <laughs> it's like... Great conversation, great talk. 
we would have a series of different conversations over the next few months in which we'd go, well, maybe, maybe not. We're unsure. We were such good friends. It was kind of hard to navigate. And eventually we just said, don't worry about it. And we went our own different ways. It would be about winter semester of our senior year that she would come back into college and into the spring semester. And she'd sit me down and she'd say, hey, something has really changed in my feelings and I want to pursue this. It just so happened coincidentally at that time that that winter break, I decided, oh, what the heck? And I decided to highlight my hair. (laughs) Really poor decision, all right? I should have known better because I was at a place in Houston called the Bushwhacker, which if that didn't get my attention... Something was off in this plan. I don't know what would have. And so I highlight my hair and then I show up for spring semester and Marcy sits down and says, hey, I'd love us to think about dating. And so I did what any natural dude would do. I just thought, what was the chronological last thing that could have created the change? It was the highlights. So it was, it would change everything, right? As silly as it was to think that the highlights changed my future wife's affections toward me, so is it, I think, to assume that Elkanah's conversation with Hannah is what brings about a change in verse 9. But notice the change in verse 9. Notice what happens. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. She hadn't been eating, she hadn't been drinking, but now she's risen and she's actually eating and drinking. Reversal number one. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 10 is our first moment in the course of 1 Samuel 1 that we see Hannah move towards the Lord. In the midst of the pain of waiting, we're not 100% sure what her relationship with the Lord was like, but we get a clear sense in verse 10. This is her first official moment where she begins to move towards the Lord. Continue with me here as it keeps on going. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. Notice, uh, actually, sorry, back in uh, verse 11, she says, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will deed and look on the affliction of my maidservant, meaning if if you'll see me, and if you'll remember me, if you won't lose sight of me, and you won't forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. She gets to this moment where she's been waiting on something for so long and she says, Lord, if you would see me, if you would hear me, if you wouldn't forget me, if you would put a a son in these hands, then upon arrival in these hands, I will offer him right back to you for your purposes and for what you desire. The period of pain and the waiting itself, I think, created a new disposition in her so that when God would finally put a child in her hands, her disposition, her reception of that gift would look entirely different. In fact, it goes on, we find in verse 17, notice the reversals as they continue. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. Go in peace, the the shalom, the fullness of God's blessing. Verse 18, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Notice the reversals. This woman whose name meant favor, who we couldn't find and trace the favor of God, now is going to receive the favor of God. Notice the reversals. A couple things in the midst of this process, though, that I want to highlight for you guys is a few myths that I think this section busts up for us. That in the midst of her movement and dedication, in the midst of her worship and response to the Lord, it doesn't remove the pain and the difficulty. Notice again verse 10. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. That even as she begins to move back towards the Lord in the midst of a dedication and an offering, there's still pain and there's still difficulty. It doesn't just get wiped away. It continues to train us. It continues to teach us. It continues to shape us. Second of all, 
for many that are dealing with pain, there's often all kinds of bad help and people are confused and they say weird things and hurtful things. And even as Hannah begins to move back and towards an amazing dedication and offering, that confusion, that misunderstanding still occurs to her. Notice what happens with Eli himself in verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Even in the midst of this movement towards the Lord, a dedication, this amazing moment in her life, she's still misunderstood, even by spiritual leadership. How absolutely exhausting and exasperating must that moment have been, right? To be shaped and to be enduring through a pain of waiting and now to begin to move back towards the Lord in an amazing moment of dedication and spiritual leadership comes along and completely misunderstands every intention of her heart. Really? Eli's going to backpedal here faster than an NFL cornerback with Odell Beckham coming at him. That was for you guys. Just trying to make sure you're still paying attention on Mother's Day. All right. And just as a heads up, I'm coming for you at the end of the morning. So don't check out. Otherwise, it's going to be a little bit harder. All right. For you. I'm coming for y'all. But Eli backpedals fast in verse 17. Then he answers and says, we'll go in peace. And may the Lord of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. He then recognizes. And so you have this moment in Hannah's life in which underneath the pain of waiting, she begins to move towards the Lord and she makes an amazing dedication of her offering and says, Lord, if you'd see me, if you'd hear me, and if you grant me a gift of a child, then I will grant him and offer him back to you. Notice verses 19 and 20 as our story unfolds. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. I love the repetition of remember here. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked of him of the Lord. God completely reverses the lack of favor and the pain in the early part of her life and fills it. It moves towards her. And the question will be, what does Hannah do next? I want to ask you in the midst of your life, how many times have you been waiting for something, begging the Lord for something, maybe even amongst your community or amongst and with the Lord, you said, hey, Lord, if you would do this, if you would see me like Hannah does, then I'll do this and this. How many times have you been in that place with the Lord, waiting and waiting and then getting into a place, maybe not bartering, but just saying, Lord, I... I want to be open-handed. I want to move towards you. I want to offer that which you would give to me back to you. Question is, once that gift comes, then what do we do? Uh, many of us with our kids, maybe you've been in that moment where they start asking for pets, right? My kids uh, had hit me up about a year and a half ago for some fish, and it went like most of these conversations go, in which I said, sure, we can do that, but I'm going to put some responsibility back on you. It's going to be your responsibility to feed the fish, to clean the tank, and to take care of the fish, right? How does this always go with our kids, right? Yeah, you know where this is going, right? It's about a month into having the fish, and they're no longer cleaning the tank. They're no longer feeding the fish, and I didn't get approval from my wife on this, so if you're in here, I apologize, but here's the aquarium today, all right? So I sometimes boycott the cleaning of the aquarium as a moment to, in front of my kids to say, hey, 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 
Remember when you promised certain things and you received that gift and you have failed to uphold your responsibilities? Boom. Every morning and every night as you brush your teeth, boom, right in front of you, right? But isn't that the natural disposition we all of us have, right? That we're waiting for something, we want something so bad, our hands are so open, and then it comes, and what do we do? Either we lose interest and we just walk away, right? Or we haven't lost interest, we really want something, it comes, and what do we do with our hands? Grasp, cling, hide, stuff, master and control, right? How often have you asked the Lord of something, been waiting for something, and then upon its arrival, your hands were no longer like this when it hit the hands, but they just grabbed hold of something and it was my precious, right? All of a sudden, the nature of our heart that had been so open in the posture of waiting now changes its posture and its disposition entirely. And we want to control, we want to stuff, we want to hide, we want to master the very thing we've been waiting for. That's why I love Hannah's response here. That's why I think it stands out so much. Because notice how our story continues. Notice what she does. Verse 21, then the man Elkanah went up with all of his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. Is she holding the child back? Is she not going to come through on her promise? What is she going to do? No, no, no. Notice what she says. I will not go up until the child is weaned and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. When that gift hits her hands that she's been waiting for, she doesn't grasp and close over it. She just simply maintains an open posture and then actually presents it back to the Lord. Amazing faith. Amazing response. Probably so trained by the experience of pain in the midst of waiting. I love what Hannah does here. I love what she models for us. And I think for us, it really presents the question that we have to wrestle with, and it's this, as we think about our own lives and the gifts of the Lord. Do you hold God's blessings loosely in your life, or do you cling and do you control? She's been waiting for a child for years. And when God's favor comes, she doesn't cling, she doesn't control, but she simply offers it back to him. What's your attitude? What's your disposition in the midst of the blessings that God's put in your life? How do you respond? I love her response here. I think it challenges us. I think it calls us forward in a lot of ways. I think for us that are parents that have a tendency maybe to control our kids, (laughs) to want to protect to want to ensure safety, to want to ensure their environment, that everything works out okay. We would never say that we're helicopter parents, but all of us have that tendency. Here's Hannah, whose disposition is not of control, not of protection, but of offering. It's a beautiful picture. And out of that position, disposition, and out of that attitude, I think the last thing I want you guys to see this morning is the priority of training that Hannah has over the life of her kid. We're going to see Samuel show up to the temple and he's going to have a response here that I think is astonishing. And what it does for us is it begs the question, what is Hannah doing in the raising of her kids that creates the response of her kids that we're going to see here in a minute? It's astonishing to me. Notice, let's pick it up. I want you guys to see the way that she trains her kid. Verse 21, or verse 22, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. For some of you moms of newborns that wonder, hey, my life is completely dominated by this little newborn now. And is my life significant? Does my life matter? Am I really impacting my child and shaping him or her in any kind of significant way? First Samuel 1 is going to say unequivocally, yes. That in the early weaning years of Samuel's life, Hannah's investment in him 
in the first three years of his life had an absolutely significant impact. One of my favorite stories is some dear friends that are uh, here at Southwood. They had gone through the newborn phase, and uh, the husband came home one day to his wife with her firstborn, probably about a month into this whole adventure, and he said, innocently and maybe a little naively, what'd you do today? Exactly. You ladies are like, oh, dear gosh, no. And she fired off, feeling a little insecure. She goes, I kept your child alive today. What did you do? All right. I think there's this moment for a lot of moms of newborns wondering, does this all matter? Is this all significant? I think Hannah's response of what we're going to see in Samuel and 1 Samuel 1, the answer is unequivocally yes. That in the first three years of Samuel's life, Hannah's going to train him and raise him in such a way that he's going to respond in a way that's going to be so entirely different than the very sons of the priests in the temple. Let me show you, all right? Notice what happens. Verse 20, uh, 23, Elkanah and her husband said, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull. Some commentaries will say that this is probably occurring at, at Samuel's age three, along with a three-year-old bull. We're not 100% sure, but it's around three probably. She took him up. And one epaph of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And although the child was young, then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the boy to Eli. The bull is killed and the child's life is given over. It's an amazing picture here in which the mom offers this child back to the Lord. But I want you to see his response as we go. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed and the Lord has given me the petition which I asked of him. And so I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And what did Samuel do as chapter one ends? And he worshiped there. This isn't to put a guilt on some of you moms, but what's the moment that happens in early childhood as you drop off your newborn or your youngin in nursery, weeping and gnashing of teeth, all right? (laughs) There's this real thing known as separation anxiety. We get it, all right? Not trying to put guilt on you, but I love what happens here as Samuel or as Hannah brings Samuel to the temple. What is his response? Worship. At three years of old, he comes to the temple and his response is worship. Why? Because he had been weaned and he had been trained in the home. I'm going to give you the contrast because notice Hannah trains Samuel in the home and he shows up at the temple and he worships. But there's a great contrast we're going to see in chapter 2 between Samuel and Eli's sons who are raised in the temple. Notice chapter 2 verse 12. Notice how they describe Eli's sons. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Verse 17 Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men, Eli's sons, despised the offering of the Lord. You get this amazing contrast as chapter 1 ends, and as we go into chapter 2, in which Eli's sons who were, born, who were raised in the temple, who were there every day around the worship and the service of God, and they despise the offering of God, they don't know the Lord, and they're worthless, wicked men. Meanwhile, Hannah trains her son at home who shows up to the temple and his first response is one of worship. What did Hannah do? What was happening at home as Hannah weaned and as she trained him so that that was his response to worship and to serve the Lord because something she was doing was different than apparently what Eli was doing. 
Notice that a couple of things I think we can pull out of this as we think about our challenge. Hannah's example, I think, gives us a challenge. And the first is this. Proximity to the temple does not lead to spiritual maturity. Proximity to the church or to the temple does not lead to spiritual maturity. Eli's sons were around it all the time. And they were wicked and they were worthless. Hannah's son Samuel was at home with Hannah and with Elkanah. And they created an environment in their home where they trained him so that his response was one of worship. So here's the point I want to highlight for you guys as you'll think about kids up here at our church and what our job is. Is it our job to help raise your kids to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus? Yes. (laughs) Is it our job primarily or our job alone? No. Think about the earliest ages of your kids. How much time do we get with them up here Sunday to Sunday? We get about an hour and 15 minutes with them on a Sunday morning. Or if they're in some other kind of preschool, then they're in some kind of other environment where they're getting some spiritual impact as well. But where and who is their greatest spiritual influence in their life? Their mom and dad. Hannah and Elkanah took the responsibility upon themselves to raise their child to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus. And so who is the single greatest impactor and influencer in a child's life? Mom and dad. So, what is our greatest responsibility as a church? Is it the direct ministry to your kids? No. Do we take that very seriously and do we want to do an excellent job at it? Yes. But our greatest impact as a church and as a staff is to equip the parents amongst us to be the kinds of influencers and spiritual leaders in the home over their kids. Our greatest impact is not directly upon your kids. Our greatest impact, hopefully as a church body, is to equip, to train, and to shepherd uh, volunteers and parents among us to be the influencer in their home because, frankly, you have way more time at home with your kids than we do with them up here. And I think you get a great picture in 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2 that proximity to the temple didn't do anything for Eli's kids. But it was the spiritual leaders in the home for Elkanah and Hannah that shaped a boy that when he showed up at the temple, he was ready to serve and he was ready to worship. So, if our greatest job and our greatest responsibility is to help equip you, how do we do that? I want to highlight a few different opportunities, a few different resources, programs, things that we do, because our vision is that we want to help come alongside of volunteers, parents as well, so that we can be an equipper and a trainer of those of you who are going to step back into the home with your kids. A few of the ways that we do that. Uh, First is this. Uh, our home builders class. Some of you guys have had an opportunity to be in there. They meet every Sunday morning at 9.15, right in our fellowship wing. Uh, they're meeting right now. Next Sunday, they'll meet again, and then they're actually taking a break for summer uh, before they come back in the fall. But I'll just tell you from my personal experience of having jumped in there with our home builders class and being alongside of others that are trying to figure out the whole parenting thing, to not have to do it in isolation, but to learn from others that are ahead of me or behind me was exceedingly helpful. If you're trying to figure out the whole parenting thing and you're trying to figure out how to be a spiritual influence to your kids, I think one of the best places to do that here at Southwood is in our home builders class. And I think that's one of the best things going here at Southwood. Uh, typically every year they'll hit a marriage uh, elective and they'll hit a parenting elective. They'll do a great job helping equip you and come alongside you as you think about how to be an influence spiritually in your home. Second thing, there's an amazing amount of resources out there. Here's a couple books that I would suggest to you guys. Uh, the first is a book called Grace-Based Parenting by Dr. Tim Kimmel. Actually, in Home Builders, they've gone through a video series at least twice in the last five years on that book, and it's just great. Uh, the second is uh, anything by Paul David Tripp. 
Uh, he's got a new book out. I haven't had a chance to read it, but called Parenting 14 Gospel Principles. And so what I'd say to you guys is books are not Bible. Uh, they're helpful resources that, especially if you have an opportunity to process them within a community, it's exceedingly helpful. A couple of resources, a couple of opportunities there. But then here's what I'd really say. If you really want to think about how to be grown and equipped to step into your home and to help spiritually lead and influence your kids, I think one of the best ways to do that is to come and serve with us in our early childhood or in our elementary. Guff mentioned it toward the end of our baby dedications, and here's why. As we step into summer with all of our college students who have taken off, do we have an absolute huge need for help back there so we can keep all the classrooms open? Yes. <laughs> right? Unequivocally, Yes. But that's not vision-oriented, and that's not really motivating, all right? Here's why I would say that it'd be really, really helpful for you as you're here this summer to find one Sunday a month to come serve, whether it's in early childhood or whether it's in elementary. It's because I don't know that there's a better place and a better way for us as a church body to come alongside of you and train you and equip you to be a spiritual influencer within your home, whether you're a parent now, whether you're going to be a parent one day. There's no better place that we can come alongside you and equip you how to teach from the Word to kids, and to call them to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus than coming and serving alongside of us. I'll tell you, getting to oversee children's ministry that I had never done before, I can't tell you how much I've learned by getting to sit and watch and listen to Aaron Richards, Lisa Sledge, getting to see Julie Dickerson lead and teach up front in the midst of our kids. I sit there and I just take notes as to what I want to do at home. So many of the women, so many of those that are helping lead in our kids' ministry, so many of the dads that are jumping into Club 56, I come and observe because it's part of my job, right? But I sit in the back and I take notes as I'm learning how in the world do you engage kids for the glory of God and teach them the word of God and to engage them and call them to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus for a lifetime. If you're unsure or you feel a little bit inequipped, inequipped, unequipped, whatever the word is there, right? Uh, then you don't come and serve in these ministries because you feel like you're a gangbuster home run hitter on that. Come serve with us because we want to help hone and craft your skill sets and being able to do that yourself as you come back home, which is where the real impact is. So for you families that are so used to every Sunday dropping off your kids because we have 100 college students back in early childhood or in elementary, well, they're not here this summer, especially the next three weeks. And so we really want to invite you and challenge you, hey, sign up one uh, Sunday a month this semester, or this summer. Uh, they're going to have sign-up sheets as you guys go back. They would love to have you engage. Maybe you're not a parent. Uh, maybe you're looking at that stage going, one day I'd love to figure out how to do that. Well, come serve with us because we want to equip you to be able to do that one day when the Lord has provided you kids. Second thing I'd say to you men, this is where I'm going to end. So if you've checked out, you might want to wake up and check in, all right? I'm coming for you here. I'll tell you, every moment in our home, there's a deal that goes on in my mind. Uh, we get to the breakfast table, we get to the dinner table, and frankly, often it's my wife who initiates, and she grabs a devotional off the bookcase, and she jumps into the Word with my kids, our kids, my kids, whatever, our kids, right? Uh, and I have something that's going on in my mind, two things. One, it's typically this. We've got to get to school, right? So can we just have them eat their cereal because we're going to be late, all right? That's one thing going through my mind. But here's the more significant thing going through my mind. My wife is amazing with our kids. She's a walking VBS. I often talk about that, all right? She's just great in engaging them. She creates a fun moment. She's great at teaching at a level that they can grasp. And so there's a moment for me as a husband, as a father, as I watch that moment of my wife with our kids 
And I'm not uncomfortable teaching the word. I'm not insecure about being able to teach the word. But even for me, in that moment, as I watch my wife with our kids, I have this feeling of passivity of I just want to sit back and spectate. And what I want to say to you husbands and you dads this morning is this. The greatest gift that you can give to your bride on Mother's Day is a commitment to engage in the spiritual development of your kids. It's not flowers. It's not a pedicure, although I'm sure they would love that, right? It's a commitment to no longer be passive and unengaged in the spiritual development of your kids. But to say to your wife, this isn't your task alone anymore. I may be horribly awkward (laughs) and they may laugh at me, but I'm going to begin to figure out how to come alongside you and do this with you. I'm not insecure about being able to teach the word, but when it comes to our kids and it comes to that moment at the table, even for me, there's a moment of, I want to pull back in passivity and I have to intentionally decide, no, (laughs) I'm going to engage. I'm going to be part of that moment. I'm going to teach them from the word as well. And so dads, No more passivity, no more outsourcing it to our college students, no more outsourcing it to your your wives and their moms. You've got to engage. They've got to see a man lead and teach the word and stand for truth and not outsource it to mom. Mom's amazing, and she's going to stay amazing. But we've got a partner, we've got to stand alongside of her as it happens and as we step in as an influence in our home. That's our prayer, and that's our hope for you. So this morning as we exit, I'll just say one last thing. One of the things I've loved about Southwood for years with our Club 56 ministry, that actually they are all in here for worship at one point this morning, which was fun, is historically for years we've had dynamic, engaging, godly dads being a part of Club 56. Uh, John Epps was a huge part of that. Toby Sledge, a huge part of that. Many of you guys, as your kids have gotten older, were part of that in the past. We've got a new round of Club 5th uh, and 6th graders coming into Club 56. And so for some of you who have an incoming 5th or 6th grader, I want to challenge you to come, not just lead in your home, but come help and be a part of Club 56 with us. We're the only campus that has dads involved in Club 56, and I want to maintain that because I think it's great for our kids to see. For us as dads to step in and to be a teacher of the word, to be a leader spiritually, and not just outsource that to someone else. So as we exit, as we wrap up this morning, my question is this. How are you, in whatever stage of life you're in, how are you going to be engaged in raising up the next generation to find and to follow Jesus? How are you going to be a part of these little kids that maybe aren't yours, uh, that are coming up through early childhood, they're coming up through elementary, they're coming up through Club 56? How are you going to be engaged in being a part of their development as they come to know and come to find and they come to follow Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you this morning for Hannah's story. For so many of us that are struggling, wading through uncertainty and wading through pain of some kind in our own life, Lord, it's easy to identify with Hannah. It's easy to wrestle and grasp that which she's dealing with. And Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. You give us direction. You help us to wrestle through where she is. And Lord, I pray that you would allow us to begin to move in the same kind of way with an open-handedness towards the Lord, towards you. I pray that you allow us, for those of us that have kids, Lord, to be an influence in our home, to not outsource that, but to stand and to lead well. To take that ownership of that mantle and to lean into it and to honor you as we do that. Lord, we pray for our kids of this church. Lord, we pray that they would come to know you in an early age. They'd come to know you, to love you, to worship you, and to serve you. That their response would be that of Samuel's. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit, we pray. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday. Mothers, happy Mother's Day.